This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. When you drop people into the deep end, and, and that's your phrase for onboarding, I like to tell people that there must not be any water in your pool. They're going to dive into a piece of concrete. And it's the same when people say, oh, we're hiring people who hit the ground running and they can get started on their own. Well, they're going to run into a brick wall because the reality is, is that you've created a culture in your organization, regardless of whether or not you chose to create culture intentionally, you've created something that people have to integrate into and it takes time. Just from an anthropologic perspective, people need time. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Wednesday, the 27th of September that we're recording this podcast. You're probably listening to it a few days afterwards. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to episode 106 of the It's a Monkey podcast, where we talk about everything related to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and um, all the related goings-ons in the industry, a very fast-moving industry, and we like to give you a bit of a a snapshot into what is happening on our previous podcast episode. Please check it out. Episode 105. That was last week's episode with Dr. Tal Rupke. And he has a blockchain startup that aims to put uh, all your medical information on the blockchain so that it's centralized and secure and a really fascinating idea. He's a medical doctor and it's it's still very early stages, but we talk a lot about blockchain on this podcast and uh, we found someone who's actually doing something that's very tangible, that's not only cryptocurrency related that's and, and is not finance related. So uh, go and listen if you haven't heard um, that podcast. But as usual, we've got a great show coming up for you. Um, soon we're going to just have a quick uh, chat about this, the, the latest tech news. But before we hit, uh, go into the tech news, just want to tell you about uh, our guest later on in the show. It's Kristen Gallagher, who's the founder of Edify. And I had a great chat with Kristen about onboarding. So Kristen is the founder of Edify, which is a consultancy that helps companies deal with the people ops challenges of, of high growth. So we had a great chat about the challenges of onboarding new staff, the benefits of having an onboarding plan. It's something that if you've worked in a company, which most of us have, or you've started a company or you manage a company, whether you like it or not, you get you get to face this quite regularly. And we had an interesting chat about that. As usual, I have my fantastic co-host, who is also the design lead at Manage Flitter and Manage Social, Kate Frappel, and uh, she's joining me from Whistler in Canada. Thanks for joining us, Kate. No worries. It's good to be back again. Before we get into the interview, let's chat a little bit about the tech news this week. Instagram announced that it's it's reached 800 million users, which uh, kudos to them. That's a huge number. Um, they have more than 500 million using it every day. Even myself, I'm using Instagram more these days. And I was, was a bit of a whinger about Instagram saying I just, I still don't enjoy it as much as Twitter, but nevertheless, and Twitter's Twitter's sitting, I think, on about 400 monthlies. So Twitter's about half of what Instagram is. Instagram, of course, is owned by Facebook. Instagram have made incredible product decisions and boy, do they get their product design right. I really take my hat off to them in playing with that product. Um, it is tight. It is a real tight experience. And it just goes to show that products, products, everything in our game, in, in SaaS businesses, particularly consumer tech, product is everything. And that's, and that um, is where I would imagine a lot of the growth is coming from. And they've also announced an, a commenting tool, which is quite interesting. Instagram has had a lot of challenges with spam, spam comments, black hat bots um, that people are using to try grow their accounts. And they've announced that they've now have a commenting tools so you can limit comments to specific groups of people. For example, only your followers or only people that you follow. And I think this is, again, quite a smart move on Instagram's sort of behalf, Kate. Definitely. Um, so at the moment, if you have a private Instagram account, your followers and following are monitored. So you decide who gets to see your posts. 
Um, and then when you share something, only the people that you have connected with can see it. So this new change is for public accounts, which means when you have a public account, you post a picture and you might put some hashtags or a geotag on there and anyone on Instagram can you know, find your content through those through those two means. So what they're saying is at the moment a lot of people can find your content and they, they post spammy comments you know, or inappropriate comments and you don't even necessarily know who they are. And now you can pick who gets to see it. So you could keep your profile on public but limit it to your followers. Or I haven't tried it yet, but I'm assuming potentially you could even create a list of people that can comment. So even if you had a a ridiculous amount of followers, only 50 that you select might have uh, commenting permissions. I think Facebook and Instagram are realizing that the whole chat room type and commenting phenomenon is really where it's all going. And Facebook have really ramped up their tooling for groups recently mm. um, in little ways and big ways. And groups, Facebook groups are just taking off. And, and, and these commenting tools are in that similar flavor where people do want to chat and comment and engage with each other. And the spammers uh, just really polluted to the point where sometimes it's, um, you know, totally distracts from the whole experience. So they're realizing that you have to provide the tools. I've been a moderator of a Facebook group with nearly the, the founder and moderator of a Facebook group that's got nothing to do with work, but nearly 20,000 people around an event. And, um, one of my frustrations over the years, I mean, the group's probably about 10 years old now. And one of my frustrations has always been the limited tools it's provided me for moderation and things like that. So definitely um, the improved tooling has helped a lot and will help people um, use it more. And uh, we hope Twitter's increased iteration is it's very much needed as well. We need more tools. We need more options. We need the product to evolve with us. So uh, we'll see if Instagram's on the way to heading to what the big one billion. I mean, I don't know what Facebook's at these days, 1.5 billion or something. It's quite something. But yeah, Instagram's going from strength to strength. Of course, our new product, Manage Social, um, it's got some fantastic Instagram functionality, which we're very excited to release to a, a test group soon. Yeah. So that's uh, that's Instagram. Another another story that popped up: an air quality tracker is now available for pre-orders. That that's really interesting because it's something we really neglect. Most of us live in cities. And even a city like Sydney that's on the harbour and relatively clean. I mean, Sydney Harbour and the beaches are for a city is pretty clean when you compare it to places like London and New York. But still, there's a lot of cars, there's a lot of trucks. And I actually do wonder about this. And we worry about things like smoking, but air quality would be a big, big issue in cities. So tell us about this product. Right. So this air quality tracker is from Plume Labs. Basically, it's just like a little, looks like a a metal device with a leather strap. Uh, It's quite small and you just attach it to your bag, for example, and take it with you and it will give you, it has its own like API and its own phone app and it like has a particular air tracker inside it. So it can talk to your phone um, and it gives you feedback on the quality of the air in in the places that you're walking or traveling in. Um, but in addition I, I to this, it. yeah, mm-hmm. in addition to this, they have a um, like a new mapping feature. So currently they've got beta testers in London and they're only a small group. I can't remember the exact number, um, but that small group of people have already covered about 20% of London. And so where they're walking and their journeys and stuff, you can track which areas are, you know, higher polluted in real time than others so if you wanted to go for a run this afternoon and you could see that your normal route is quite polluted then you could either change route or decide to go the next morning instead so it's sort of giving you a bit of control 
what would be really interesting as well is when you decide to move into an area or even a specific house or apartment, I would imagine air quality can differ in over very short distances, right? So if you if you're building that perhaps is next to a road where there's buses, I would imagine the air quality is very different to the road parallel, but it's a quiet road and has no buses. So it would be quite – and over the long term, if you're there for two, three, five, ten years, the impact to your health could be pretty significant. So yeah. another metric, we're moving to this quantified world where we can quantify everything and measure everything. And I'm going to order them. I'm going to order one. How much, um, how much is it? So pre-order – is $139, uh, but it will be going up to $199. But they're not really available until June 2018, so you could be waiting about a year. Well, I will definitely, definitely give it a go. I, I love I love all this quantifying. Um, of course, the, the challenge with all of this is you've got a million devices for everything. So yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's not really sustainable, but the, the aim is that your phone – or your glasses, or at least maybe your phone and your glasses, or just two or three could capture everything. Phone, your glasses, and maybe your mattress. It'd be better if it was all in your watch even, which is what they're aiming for. Yeah, look, I mean... You could measure air pollution, you could measure sleep, and you could measure exercise. But when it comes to the quantified self, I think things like the mattress or even despite the ick factor of toilets as well, that's constantly monitoring what's going on with you. All just seamlessly. I look forward to the day all just seamlessly where you just get this little, just like you do with the server, you set up all these alerts and when you're running out of disk space, you get pinged up oh, and careful. You, you got to look at the disks or there's memory issues or something's not working properly. And it's, it's a more passive type of scenario as opposed to medicine is still so broken it's by the time we go to the doctor usually things are pretty bad usually Usually. that's when medicine can identify things so yeah anyway uh, let's maybe even try get hold of them for the podcast whoever they are where are they based out of the states no i think they're in the uk in london okay cool i do remember being in london many years ago and the air pollution was so significantly bad. Like I've never experienced blowing my nose and it being black, <laughs> right? And I think they've improved the air quality since then. Oh, you'd hope but so. this must have been, I don't know, early 90s. I was very, very young. And it was that bad. It was really that bad in London. And it was pretty disgusting. And you think, whoa. It's my body was just not happy. And I was coming from Johannesburg, which I think in the suburbs of Johannesburg was relatively clean at the time, well, especially compared to London. So, yeah, and, and air quality in, 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 you know, places like Kuala Lumpur and some of the Chinese cities, it really causes health issues. It lands up leading to deaths. But that's very obvious. You know, you don't need something to measure when you can't see a few meters in front of you. You know, it's pretty bad, right? Yes, definitely. I don't think I've quite found a place in the world like that. But you make an interesting point too. I've noticed as well since moving to Whistler, again, they're not major things, but like different environments. And uh, when you when you do move to another environment, your body notices it. Like just little things, you know, we've like where I am now, there's a lot more trees, a lot more pollen, like hay fever is a lot more common. And like, I don't think Particularly, I have hay fever, but on some days I have hay feverish symptoms, which I would never have in Sydney. So I think it does, it makes a difference. And if you could track this kind of data, it's got to be good. It's got to be good, right? You know where I think the freshest air in the world is, in my experience? Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, a couple of hours west of Sydney. I find that air to be the most magnificent air that I've experienced. I've I don't know if it's just mm. all the different vegetation there or what's going on, but it's it, it feels so thick with oxygen. I've never quite experienced air like the Blue Mountains in Sydney. So if you're listening to the show and you're curious about somewhere to go and you, you, you're not in Australia or even if you're in Australia, check out the Blue Mountains. That's uh, Have you had a similar experience in the Blue Mountains, Kate? Have you noticed that? Um, I've noticed that it's, that it's clean. I wouldn't really say that it's like the most clean I've ever I've ever had, but 
And again, I suppose like, yeah, any, anywhere that's sort of outside and potentially a little bit cooler as well. Like there's, there's spots in the mountains here in Whistler or even in Alberta, um, which is a separate province uh, in Canada, that are particularly fresh and you notice it. I think, you know, and having spent quite a bit of time in New York, the one thing that really I do notice as I land is that the air, it's not even so much that it's the pollution. I feel like I can't access as much oxygen and it, it bothers me immediately. And, and of course, then I get used to it and forget about it. And then when I come back to Australia, even at the airport, which is in a relatively busy part of, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty industrial. It's, it's, there's a lot going on. It's not exactly the cleanest part of Sydney, but even at the airport, when I get out of the airport, the air feels again, thick with oxygen and, um, beautiful. And I'm like, wow, it's good to be back in Australia with this <laughs> thick oxygen rich air. Cause in New York, you know, wow. I mean, New York, there's especially in Manhattan and some of, and some of the, the, the boroughs there that, uh, concrete, not, not much vegetation, lots of cars, lots of buildings, and it just doesn't regenerate itself, I think, in the same way as Sydney. Sydney is bounded by national parks, north, south, and west, and the ocean on the east. Yeah. So I think that helps us a lot. And even though it is a pretty big city of 4 million people, um, we're still surrounded by nothingness, which helps. So we, we're quite, quite lucky here. Anyway, um, that's, a, that's an interesting product. We're going to take a short break. And after the break, we're going to chat about onboarding and uh, with Kristen Gallagher, who's an onboarding expert. She's the founder of Edify, also hosts her own podcasts. And I had a great chat with her earlier this week. So um, stick with us. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the business operations manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Manage Flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on Twitter? Let me explain in six easy steps. Step one, find new prospects on Twitter with Power Mode, Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, Follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and the co-founder of Manage Flitter. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. As you know, as a CEO, uh, a big part of my job is growing the team, managing the team, leading the team, and it's definitely one of the trickier parts of the business. I always say every business is a people business, and people are the big X factor because People are people, you know, computers tend to either be working or not working, machinery either working or not working, and, and humans, we are wonderfully complex. I think even if you think back to yourself, whether you're 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old, or 80 years old, you're still learning things about yourself every day. So you can imagine as a leader um, how tricky it is to lead people. So um, one of the aspects that's tricky in tech teams is actually growing the team and getting getting the team members integrated and onboarded in the, in the team, so to speak. And I'm happy to say that uh, at the end of my Skype line, joining us today is Kristen Gallagher, who's the founder of Edify and also the host of Upright and Better. And Edify is a company that builds onboarding, uh, especially technical onboarding for growing tech companies. So I'm excited to discuss all this exciting onboarding uh, area with Kristen. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to, to talk about growing tech teams. So onboarding, I mean, whether you're a small company or big company or whether you call it onboarding or you don't give it a name, it is something that inherently needs to happen when someone joins a new company. There's a technology stack, there's tools, there's 
technical teams. They have to get integrated. I mean, how big, how big of a problem, or let's rephrase that, how big of an opportunity is this for most companies to actually get a, a very much better at? It's a great question. I always tell people that you are doing onboarding, whether you've planned it or not, and your onboarding either sucks or it's good. And it can be better if it's good. Um, but you're, even if you haven't figured out what your onboarding quote, you know, your program is, then you're still doing it, whether or not you deliver a laptop to your new hire on the first day. I mean, you wouldn't believe the kind of stories I get from new hires where they've got not gotten a desk for three weeks or they haven't gotten a laptop for a few days, uh, much less a meeting with their manager about what they're actually supposed to be doing, um, which seems like a big waste to me because you spent a lot of time and effort and money in the recruiting process and hiring this person that you thought was great. So from an opportunity standpoint, and you know, the same side of the, or the other side of the coin is the problem. It's very expensive to lose employees. And we talk, I think previously I was hearing in the industry, you know, we don't want to lose people at six months. We don't want to lose them at eight months. And that's true. You don't want to lose an employee then, but it's a lot cheaper to lose somebody at six to eight months than it is at 12 to 18 months. And that's when onboarding actually comes back to help you. So if you invest early on in their first three months, their first 90 days, and you're helping them build competence and confidence in their technical work, whatever that may be, it could be sales, it could be engineering, it could be QA, whatever that technical work is for that team, you're helping them build the knowledge they need to be successful and the connections with people they need. That's going to come back to support you when 12 to 18 months later, they're really deciding if they want to stay with your company. And the industry data is saying that people start deciding that at six months, but they really make their final choice about about a year. So they are kind of curious, are you going to are you going to be the employer that they wanted to be? Because, you know, we've talked a lot about a talent war. And I think it's more not it's not so much that we're missing talent, although that's part of it. It's that companies can scoop up talent from another company who's not treating them well, very, very easily. What does the research show around dropping people in the deep end? I've got a friend that recently joined a, a big corporate consultancy and there was zero onboarding, absolutely <laughs> zero. And it's been so perplexing that I almost thought to myself, maybe their approach is right. We, it's survival of the fittest. We, they have to learn how to integrate. They have to have initiative. They have to sink or swim. And that way, whoever survives is a certain DNA of personality. Is there any merit in that approach? Um, the neurological research and the research on how people learn says no. Mm -hmm. So when you drop people into the deep end and, and that's your phrase for onboarding, I like to tell people that there must not be any water in your pool. They're going to dive into a piece of concrete. And it's the same when people say, oh, we're hiring people who hit the ground running and they can get started on their own. Well, they're going to run into a brick wall because the reality is, is that you've created a culture in your organization, regardless of whether or not you chose to create culture intentionally, you've created something that people have to integrate into. And it takes time just from an anthropologic perspective, people need time to understand how to do a PR, they need time to understand how to communicate with each other, they need time to gain respect and build trust. And those are the things that actually get your work done. It's not the technical skill, eventually, they will get the technical skill if you've hired well. But when you drop somebody into, can I quote the deep end, you're, what you're saying is I don't have time and I don't value this person enough to build the on-ramp for them. And the on-ramp can be surprisingly simple. It doesn't actually have to take a lot of work. And in fact, I think half of it is is kind of psyching yourself up that you're even going to do it um, and even going to provide something to somebody. So the research is not positive on that. And I think when I talk to CEOs, I talk to folks who will say, oh, no, we do want this survival of the fittest, or that's how I'm going to know that they're a good hire. Well, number one, if, if you're still testing your hire after you've hired, then that means that you weren't totally confident in the hire and you're you're wasting a lot of money and resources and, and time. And number two, what that means to me is that you don't actually know how to do it and you don't know how to be a people leader and and that's a failing on on their part. 
I think also it depends on the industry. I mean, in the tech industry, it's so competitive. We are really, it's literally a supply-demand factor that we have to take into account. We have to have every loophole closed because often when someone's accepted a job with you, they've rejected three, four, five jobs, and they could literally, I mean, we had an instance many, many, many years ago where we managed to recruit a very smart student at a uni recruitment fair. It was his first job out of uni. And it was the very, very early days of Managed Flitter, and we were just so busy and a million miles an hour. And we were very well-intentioned. We gave this developer a, a task working on a secondary project, actually thinking this would just be a, a low risk and actually just ease him in for a week or two. But after a week, he was so frustrated working on a legacy project and we hadn't shown him enough love that on a Saturday evening, he sent me a resignation letter. Obviously, it was eating away at him. And he just took that. And what was eating away at him as well was that he had had two job offers and he accepted ours initially. And in the whole time in his head, he was obviously thinking, oh, I wonder if this onboarding was going to be a whole lot better with this other company. And we lost this team member to another startup. So a lot of the time, good developers do have two, three, four job offers. So even if you don't get that first week right, they can they can even just jump ship at that stage. So you've got to give it your best, best shot. I mean, we're not going to get everything right. And also, you know, people, I would imagine people, people enjoy different types of onboarding, you know, as well. Certainly. I mean, you know, some people would require and also t different stages of their careers. The junior people do need a bit more direction and hand-holding and don't know, have as much confidence. And I've had some senior team members that have started and, and managed to piece the puzzles and onboard themselves in, in, in very many ways. I mean, we're a tiny, fast-moving team and, and our onboarding is uh, very, very light. I, I don't think we could wave a banner at this stage and say we're the, we a, a best, best practice of onboarding. Sure, and I think one of the things that is really important for teams to understand is that your onboarding can be light. It just needs to be strategic and you need to think a little harder about how you're introducing them to things. You're still going to have a fire hose of information. There's still going to be too much to learn in too little time. And that is actually a test of, of your new hire. I mean, they, they do need to be able to parse the information. They need to be able to prioritize. Those are things that you actually are looking for. And those are going to show you how well this person is going to be on your, you know, how well they're going to do on your team in the long run. Um, if they really struggle to prioritize, that can tell you a lot more about their ability to do work in the future. And I think one of the things that you'll never be able to get away from with startups is that we are all moving very, very quickly. And there's not really a way to slow it down unless you want to make some trade-offs on your business model. So um, if you're not able to make those trade-offs, then we, we just have to recognize that. So I think there are some really simple ways that people can have some really nice onboarding that is way better than nothing at all. I think also what surprises me from a candidate perspective, it's a great question for a candidate, and I don't think I've ever been asked this, is what is your onboarding process? I think people have come to expect that there will be no onboarding. I mean, in most of the teams that I work in for my clients, people say, uh, I've never been onboarded, so I don't know what you want me to say. I don't know what the baseline is. And then when we build our their first onboarding program and we get the feedback from the new hires, those new hires say, wow, this is light years away, it's so much better than what we had. And I'm thinking, wow, we really didn't do a whole lot here. You know, we, we really hit the minimum bar, which, you know, we build programs in a really iterative fashion. So we build the lightest weight program we can to see if that will move the needle for the team. I always love the, I've got, I've had some friends that have joined some in corporate internship programs for a year. And I always thought these are, in an ideal world, it would be such a fantastic way to onboard people where they spend six weeks in different departments. And we don't I love have, that idea. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, the, the power of that to get visibility into all the different aspects of the organization and to see how they interlink and even to see the deficits in the organization is, is just absolutely fantastic. It's, 
It really is. And I think that you can make that work, that sort of rotational approach. You could even make it a little smaller, spend two weeks in each department. And like I said earlier, there are a lot of trade-offs that you might be looking at if you want to do that. I always laugh when I'm coming into a company and they say, well, we don't want to do a, you know, a one day onboarding. We want to do like a two hour onboarding because we need them to get to work right away. And I say, well, what kind of work are they going to give you on their first day? Right. Did you give any work on your first day? No, like nothing that is, you know, shippable, nothing that's client ready, nothing that's, you know, product focused is going to happen probably in their first week. I mean, you're lucky if they might commit their first line of code in their first week because they're still figuring out all the processes, right? So I think if you wanted to explore the idea of rotational onboarding, that is a really interesting way to get people to understand your business. And one of the problems that I see a lot, especially in engineering and products teams, is that they don't actually have an understanding of the customer. And we talk a lot about how we're agile and how we're you know, moving quickly and we're very iterative, but the missing link in that, that you really kind of have to have to really call yourself agile is a customer and be able to talk to that customer or have a customer proxy. And so many of these teams don't actually have that. So the engineers that they're bringing on don't ever get to talk to the customer. They never really get to understand who they're building for. So there's there's lots of deficits that I think we could fill by experimenting with that. And I think it makes, it, it means, if we wanted to do that, it means a shift in our mindset and a shift in the way that we approach work and the way that we approach expectations around the outcomes of work. One thing that has, I have found that it helps a little bit with onboarding is if we make an offer and someone accepts it and they've got to give two to four weeks notice, et cetera, et cetera. We give them immediate access to our Slack channels so that sure. they can start seeing what we're talking about, um, our approach, our cultural DNA. By the time they actually get into the office, there's, there's that sense already of what we're about. And I do find that actually is quite a simple way to, to kick things off. I think that's so great because it's the context. I think a lot of people will say, yes, so this is the process. But when you come into the business, you actually realize, well, the process is really contingent on some politics or it's really contingent on, you know, whether or not that release manager wants to pay attention to this today because they've got other things to deal with. So I think being able to allow your new hire to get as much context as they can, whether it's the Slack channel or sending them some documentation about the history or some, some, you know, I've even done, you know, video. So sitting the, you know, a, a screen recorder in front of the engineering VP or a director and say, you know, what's your process for shipping work here? And just having them kind of expound on what that means to them. That is so valuable to a new hire because they're coming in cold. They don't know how it is that you build products here. Even if they're coming from kind of the same industry, it's probably very different in your company. And I think, again, similar to the question that people should ask, what is your onboarding process? I think candidates shouldn't be afraid to demand a little bit onboarding, of onboarding, perhaps even to drive it a bit themselves, um, mm -hmm. take a little bit of control over the process, schedule meetings and and or ask people to look over their shoulder or get involved in bits and pieces. Um, I, I find as much as I love working with developers and they're some of the smartest people in the world, but sometimes I find that, especially on the human layer side of things, they don't have to accept things at face value, you know, and I think sometimes right. they do accept things a little bit at face value on the human level side of things. I think that's true. I, and uh, I get asked a lot, you know, why do you put so much effort um, into making the company onboarding? Shouldn't the new hire really be driving that? And I truly think it's a 50-50. I think if you are bringing on a new hire and they're never asking you questions and they're not asking you about priorities and they're not asking you where the company's going, that's actually kind of a yellow or an orange flag for me. So I, I want to see that a new hire is saying, well, who do I contact when you're gone? Or how do I get more context about that thing? Or how do I, can I talk to the salesperson? Cause I really want to understand what the process is. Cause that means that they're really starting to think about the system as a whole, which is, you know, increasingly, I think that's what we need in tech companies is not just 
cogs to do work because we're theoretically all going to get replaced if we do cog work. Um, we need people to think across boundaries and across silos. So I think that is onboarding. And one of the ways that I've done that with companies is produce uh, something like a 90-day plan template and a manager can take that template. It's pretty much already done and they just tailor it a little bit. But the funny thing about the template is it's actually driven by the new hire. So they'll get that template back from the manager. It won't be a template at that point. It'll be kind of tailored to them. But it's going to ask the new hire every couple of weeks, what do you think about this process? What are your reflections? Have you had a one-on-one with your manager? And like most managers um, I know, who don't schedule these things, they they have so much going on, maybe they're managing a team of 10 or 12 people, they're, they don't have an assistant to help them do that. The new hire is going to be critical in making sure that they get the information, you know, because the relationship is is flipped. The, the new hire feels like this is a one-on-one, but the manager's probably feeling like, you know, I'm being pulled in 12 different directions. I think, you know, you made an interesting point there about people being... Um needing to insulate themselves, I guess, from from being replaceable or even replaced by technology themselves. And I think a, a definite tip to someone listening to this podcast is to get that communication layer really going, that involvement, that engagement layer really going, because then you do become, if you're someone that's involved in adding value a lot more than your code, whether it's sort of, you know, lubricating the processes along the way or enabling other people or coming up with with new approaches, it's you're suddenly going to be adding values in you're going to be much more difficult to replace than than someone that's just in their well-defined area. So and that really helps if you choose the right job and you're passionate about the product and you're passionate about the company, then hopefully you'll you'll at least quite naturally head towards that in any case. But I think, I think technical staff can, can often, and I'm obviously seeing things from my perspective, but I, I feel that they can push themselves a little bit more to get involved on, on, on that level, and it's, it's only in their interest. I mean, the best developers I've worked with have all had excellent communication, have been very broadly curious about everything and looking at improving everything across the whole organization. I completely agree. I think if we are are looking for folks that are really going to add value to our team, it's not the kind of lone genius who sits in the corner and hammers away code until one in the morning. It's the person who can bring a lot of value to multiple conversations. So, Kristen, give us a couple of tips. If uh, someone's listening and they're a small business, say less than 20 people and... um, they rushed off their feet and the CEOs rushed off their feet and, you know, they want to, they do value their team and their culture and they want to give new hires a effective experience. What are some of the initiatives and simple elements that they can put in place to, to maybe start putting some shape on their onboarding? Yeah. So the easiest thing that I think you could do is a really lo-fi video recording of yourself. You could literally sit in front of Skype and record yourself or, you know, screener or whatever. And number one, talk about the history of your company. What is the context of your company? And you can keep it to five, 10 minutes. Just give them a little bit of an information about what kind of organization they're walking into. So I would call that sort of piece number one of the curriculum, quote unquote. And piece number two is how do you manage. So if you're, especially if you're a small company and people are still going to have some connection to you as a founder or a CEO or a high level executive, talk to them about, this is how I expect things. This is how I communicate. I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to do my best to learn how you communicate, but this is how I do work here. And so this is what you can expect from me. Uh, that can include, we have, you know, monthly meetings for this, or we have all hands, or we have daily standups at this time. And so I want you to be involved in that. So that's piece number two of the curriculum. And piece number three is I would really encourage you to 
put on paper just a couple of things that you want this person to do in their first 30 days. Just think about the first 30 days rather than the first 90 days and help them get through that. Um, and the things from the buckets that I would encourage people to think about are process, product, and technology. So process is how we do the work and it's the context and product is anything that matters for actually producing the thing that we make money on. And technology is the way that we actually build that tool or that product. So, you know, the way that we commit code, what are the rules about pager duty? What are the rules about messaging? So those are the three things that I would suggest doing. Fantastic. And um, your podcast, Upright and Better, it's a pretty new podcast. How's it going? It's going well. I just recorded the the finale for the first season today, so the 13th episode, uh-huh. um, and we'll do a couple of co- sort of mini workshops, kind of uh, small episodes that give people tips and tools based on some of the things that we talked about with my guests this year. And then we'll start up brand new with season two in January. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. And uh, it's definitely Thank a very um, onboarding is, is probably one of these areas that's not that sexy, but incredibly fundamental and important. So um, definitely you, you are involved in an interesting area there. Kristen Gallagher uh, in Portland, USA, the founder of Edify and the host of Upright and Better. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, onboarding is the type of thing that is interesting for all of us that have had to be involved with it. It's not as sexy as um, talking about branding and design and, you know, the latest quantified self, etc. But it's something that's so relevant because we've all had experiences, even if it was at university jobs, where we just came into the workplace on the first day they put us in a corner and for four or five hours, we were just staring at the walls and just not knowing what to do. And we're just wondering, why have you brought me here? Why did you not think about this? This is crazy. How does the real world work? This is ridiculous. And on the flip side of things, as a business owner, you know, we, as I mentioned, I talk about a story in there where we, where we lost a, a good developer because of our not well thought through onboarding. So it's something that I'm very aware that's that first experiences are very powerful and you want to give new team members, you want them to go home and just saying, wow, I made the right decision. That's everything's just, you know, going as exceeding my expectations. So it's uh, onboarding has affected everyone in the professional world at some point or another. Yeah, definitely. I think that that first impression does count for a lot of people and as you said like when you first sort of get a job if, if there's no one there to really help you, you sort of you know well personally I have like thoughts of oh well I don't really want to annoy that person that I'm supposed to annoy mm. should I know this already and I, I don't and you know it's it's good if you can if you can sort of self-start to an extent um, but I think too like you know as a Businesses shouldn't necessarily make that assumption. That I think they they can go a little bit further and assume that you're not that you don't know things that you might, and then you're actually outdoing yourself. And it also just helps as a new hire to feel like you're competent and you know what you're doing. I ca- I keep on coming back to this idea when I was at university and. I was doing a course that intimidated me quite a lot. And when I would even as much as I'd prepare for the exams, I'd get quite nervous and intimidated in the exam. And I came up with this strategy to spend five minutes and finding the easiest question. 
right? So I would find the easiest question. So I would get the confidence and just have my head in the right space. And I sort of think, uh, and, and somehow I'm thinking it's similar to onboarding that you want to make people feel like that there's a high likelihood that they're going to be able to do their best work here. Right. Yeah. So that they can at least calm down, get in the right headspace and get going with it as opposed to them having to deal with multiple issues, new job, new team, not understanding politics. They're scared to ask people, are they supposed to onboard themselves? Is this, are they doing something wrong? And just too hard, too complicated. How can someone do their best work in that situation? Exactly. Exactly. I agree. I think it's important that, you know, that the help is there. I mean, the, the job itself may require a lot of self-starting, but I think businesses can help, particularly in, in like uh, Kristen says, in that first week or even month, but the week in particular, just because, you know, you are already stressed and you don't know anyone or who to talk to or what questions are silly and what questions are smart. And if the company can make that easier, then I think it's just better for everyone. Well, can you remember back to when you joined Manage Flitter? I remember vividly interviewing you, but I actually can't remember you starting. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I remember starting. Yeah, that was back uh-huh. when we were Melon. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, I, I do remember. I remember thinking, oh, I remember at the time, so Chelsea. Chelsea was um, around and Joe was on her honeymoon, I believe. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so Chelsea was doing a lot. And I remember, I actually remember thinking, oh, I, I don't want to ask too many questions because I don't want to bother her. But at the same time, like whenever I did, she was like super, super nice about it, super helpful. But yeah, I think too, like it's just like a perseverance thing as well. Like I started, it was an internship at the time, so it wasn't necessarily a job. And so I was like, well, you sort of have to accept your fact that you're at the bottom of the pecking order, that you don't know things. You're only going to find out if you ask. Yeah, and just go from there. I think some people may jump to conclusions too quickly. And then, and then that might be the reason that they don't stay. But then again, if they've got lots of offers, then pick the one that feels the most right. And I think, and we spoke about that in the interview, and I think that's a very, very, very core point because I, re- I remember back when I um, was lucky enough to get my foot in the door at a very successful radio station in South Africa, which I've, I've probably alluded to quite a few times on this podcast over the years. And it was incredibly, this was pre-internet or just when the internet was coming around. So things like podcasts and videos and YouTube didn't didn't exist. So the only way you could really get involved in the media was through companies, media companies. So it was incredibly high demand. Every media student or anyone interested in media wanted to get a job at this place. So they, they would, and it was the most successful company there. So if you managed to get your foot in the door there, you were just so lucky and counted yourself so lucky and you knew that there were another hundred people behind you that's onboarding. Boy, we, we didn't, we didn't have any of that. I mean, I got minimal training from some peers, but one of the reasons that I managed to have some success there was I just managed to wiggle through and work things out myself yeah. and just to make things happen and with no onboarding, no direct help and and having initiatives. So, yes, I think we are forced in the tech industry because if there were another 50 brilliant radio stations, would I have, and they all had made me offers, would I have persevered with a very ordinary onboarding experience? Probably not, right? No. Why? Like life's so much about supply and demand and and you don't put up with shit if you don't have to. And sometimes if you have to, you do put up with it. I mean, that's that's the hard reality of it, right? That's why the capitalist system of competition works so well because it just pushes everyone to iterate and do their best. Yeah. I mean, I haven't particularly worked for a, a large company, but just from where I stand, I think in smaller companies you can it is a little bit more comfortable to just ask as many questions and ask as many people that you can see questions and just, and just learn from them. Whereas in like potentially in bigger companies, again, I'm making assumptions, you're going into a very specific role, the specific job, and it's sort of expected that you know how to do 80% of it. You're just going to learn the company's, um, I guess like communication structures and stuff might be different. And then, and that would be stressful too. Like I would, if I was going into a role that was very specific like that, I would want someone to sort of 
I guess, show me around and make me feel comfortable and feel competent. I think that's the key. Yeah, I think I think that's the key. Competent. I think one of the challenges with onboarding, why it always feels so hard, is momentum is a very powerful force. So you've got your status quo of your team, of your projects, and suddenly someone pops in, right? And there's this momentum and you've got to slide them into your, your workflow and your day. And, and it's suddenly you've got to do more with the same amount of time. So there's that natural friction that plays out when trying to onboard someone new, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's like the, the person or the, the manager that's in charge of onboarding I think they well, there's another point there too that they need some time to they need to cut time out of their day to teach someone and make someone feel comfortable and be friendly to them and answer all their questions which on a normal day they wouldn't be doing. So in a way those managers also need the support of the company to have less tasks that day or even that week so that they can help the newbie. Yeah, look, I mean it's 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 also the type of task that's very you don't feel immediate benefits. So it's, it's, you know, most of our jobs are a bit of like a hospital emergency room triage where we deal with what's, what's the, the biggest fire. So onboarding, you know, sometimes doesn't get that visibility, but um, yeah. In anyway, the short term, an, potentially. In, the, in short the short term, it's like, oh, I don't have time to teach this person. They can teach themselves. But long term, you're potentially risking a good employee. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's hard as a small startup, you got to pick your battles. I mean, I think if you, if resources are unlimited and you are the Googles and the Apples, what a wonderful opportunity to really, you know, for three months, almost just have them on board, you know, on board culturally, on board technically, you've got the, the resources to do that. And I'm sure, I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine that these companies are very smart and they would and and they would do that, you know. But we are forced in the tech industry to to push to do everything right because the the war for talent is is brutal, especially for developers. And if you are a developer, you get the benefits of that. But as the company side of things, we've we've got to make it an environment where the smartest want to do their best work, and this is all part of that. Definitely, I agree. Anyway, that's episode one hundred six of the It's a Monkey podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you do enjoy this podcast, you can do three things for me. One of them is if you haven't tried out Manage Flitter yet, go to manageflitter.com and load up your Twitter accounts and see what insights you can get into your Twitter account. Second thing is you can drop us an email and tell us about yourself, who you are, why do you listen, what do you like, what don't you like. We'd like to make this podcast better. And the third thing is either tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or pop a comment on the blog and that helps us as well. Otherwise, we'll catch you next week or next weekish or so. And we try to keep them going every week, but sometimes it's every 10 days. But you probably don't even notice, or maybe you do. I don't know. And uh, thanks to my co-host, Kate Frappel, and we'll see you next time. See you later. <laughs>